Good morning. Take your manuals. Go to Revelation 19, verse 11 through 21. Jesus lives. And the kingdom comes. He lives. And the kingdom comes comes. Um, I have been looking forward to this passage since January the 8th, and we're here. But I want to say something to you. I think it's important to understand that, uh, to reiterate, the purpose of prophetic passages in the Scriptures is not to satisfy the curiosity of people who are seeking curious things. It is to encourage the saint. So if in reading this you're looking for um, the satisfaction of curiosity and foretelling, you're going to be sorely disappointed. The mission of this text, as is the mission in all of the book of Revelation, is to reveal Jesus as He is. That's the point. Uh, the good news is the way we've come at this book, which I would argue is the only way to come at the book of Revelation, is how it's intended to be read, is to see Jesus as He is. And, and the cool testimony from that is the things you guys have been saying, emailing, texting, um, and just in personal conversation on how the Lord has made Himself clear to you and that, that you have been exhorted and encouraged to lift your eyes to see Jesus. And I would say, Amen. That's the point. And this morning will be absolutely no different. That our mission is to get ourselves to look up and see Him. To look up and see the King. Maybe uh, this week hasn't been what it could have been for you or I. I know mine hasn't. Uh, perhaps months haven't been what they could have been. Maybe even a decade hasn't been what it could have been. The very moment progress seems to take place, advancement seems to happen, things blow up. The very moment something is about to happen that's important, the very moment something important is about to go off, life implodes. Maybe we came this morning looking for solutions to problems that seem to never go away. But I, I want to offer you from Revelation 19 this morning an eternal and non-material solution. This morning is not going to be a masterpiece in how to conquer anything. If you came looking for a list on how to accomplish something, you're going to be really disappointed. It is a what is reality talk. What is truth? You see, I'm convinced moments like those I just described when we're about to maybe get over or about to advance... And something important is about to happen and life blows up and it, it goes off the tracks are too perfectly timed to be coincidence. I would say it's war. 
It's war. First, if the God of the Bible is, okay, if the God of the Bible is, that is his name, Yahweh, and Jesus said he was Yahweh, if the God of the Bible is, then there are no coincidences. There's no such thing as coincidence. No such thing as luck. No, just things, such things just, just happened. Proverbs say the lot is cast into the lap. Can you finish it? Praise God. Thank you. Yes. If we can even cast down a lot and the Lord be in charge of how it lands. There are no coincidences. There's good news for us in that. They're only providential moments. The Lord has not relegated history on the grand scale and even on the micro scale to anyone. Remember back in chapter 6, Jesus is the opener of the seals, remember? He unleashes history. Second, this war is not, and I have in all caps, Emphasizing the point to scream. This war is not over the happening of events that blow up life. Or even the timing of events that seem to blow up life. The war is over how we respond to the events. That's the war. The war isn't that that things happen at just the right moment or don't happen at the right moment. It's not the point. The war is over how I respond to those events. You see, the war is over my worship. Because remember, worship is my response to the revelation of the Lord's glory and majesty. You see, Satan's deception to Adam and Eve was over his desire to be God. And that led them into the same lie that they could be sovereigns. They could be captains of fate. That they could be in charge and able to set the course. You see, every event, everything, every happening that threatens to remove my focus, that threatens to remove my desires, that threatens to remove mission and ultimately worship, And ultimately, all these things are ways we worship. Anything that threatens to remove those from Jesus is a craftily designed opportunity to shift my worship from Jesus to me. See, when the mission becomes my own salvation from my circumstances, I worship me. Jesus never said to me, deliver thyself. He never said to you, deliver thyself. So when I take upon the role promised in the garden by the snake, I become the object of my own affection. When my desires for things become stronger than my desire for Jesus. I worship me. 
when my mission becomes oriented to temporal events rather than eternal reality, I worship me. And when I worship me, the evil one is glorified by propagating his lie that he started in the garden at the tree with our parents. So if I respond to all of these things in doubt, in mistrust, and in questioning, it's an epic fail in the war for my affection. In the war for my worship. But, if I respond in treating these events and their timing as peripheral, okay? I'm being very careful and intentionally going over what I wrote on purpose because it's very important. If I respond in treating the events and timing as peripheral, not unimportant, Understand, what happens to us is not unimportant. It happens to us. It hurts or it feels right. It it matters, okay? But if the events and the timings are peripheral, as opportunities to look up and see the forest in spite of the trees, as opportunities to see Jesus as the ruler of my day, as the lover of my soul, as the pursuer of my life and good, as the one who's sovereign over my day and even my hurts, then I can come and worship Jesus in word and deed and deal a grievous blow to the evil one. What do we need to see today? This is what I need to see. Is My prayer is to help me see the, see the forest in spite of the trees. I need help for me to see Jesus as the ruler of my day. I need to see Jesus as the lover of my soul. I need to see Him as the pursuer of my life and my good. I need to see Him as the sovereign over my day and even over my hurts. So that He can help me come and worship in word and deed. And for the churches who received this letter, the mission was not to focus on their persecution. It wasn't to focus on how the timing played out with when they were captured or when they were caught. Those were not unimportant, but they were not the point either. It wasn't unimportant that many of them were carted off to the games. And in November, when we do the All Saints Day talk, I'm going to talk about the life of Perpetua. Mark 7, 302 A.D. in Carthage. How she and her friends, her little band, are fed to the arena to be killed because they worship Jesus. To try to make an example out of these young Christians to stop the advance of this sect of people who worship this man they said is risen at the hands of the Romans. The point... Is not that she died. The point isn't that maybe we're, for his sake, counted as sheep to be slaughtered. 
Those are not unimportant, but they are also not the point. They are grand opportunities to lift our eyes and see the ruler of my day. To see the one sovereign over my life. And to see that he is advancing his cause, even in me, even when it's not working right. That the lover of my soul has not left me to me or to them. And what you and I desperately need to see today is exactly that. It's just an opportunity. Revelation 19, 11 to 21 is an opportunity that John is screaming from Jesus to us. Look! Behold! Your redemption draws near. Look up! Because if we get sidetracked on the peripherals, not that they're not important, but if that becomes our focus, if it's, oh my hurt, or oh my joy, or oh my advancement, or oh my decline, we're worshiping an idol. And the Lord says to His church, He starts it off, look, 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 see Him. And so guys, I say to you today, who are in the thick of war, those of you who are doing the ministry, those of you who are involved in the advance of the gospel, you're working, your hands are to the plow, you're fighting for community, you're fighting for the gospel, you're fighting for the cause of Christ in the dark, damp, rancid corners of our town and our world. The point is not the peripherals. Let's not get sidetracked. Let us lift our eyes and see our King. For He comes... The kingdom comes with him. So I say to you, lift up your head and see. Lift up your head and look. Salvation comes. Let's worship the king. Not us. Well, here we go. I'm going to read Revelation 19, 11 to 21. If you have your Bibles, please uh, feel free to look along with me. I'm reading from the English Standard Version. Then I saw heaven opened, and behold, I love behold, it's a great Bible word. It means look, look with your eyes, look with your heart, look with your soul, look, a white horse. The one sitting on it is called faithful and true, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems or crowns. And he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He, had, he is clothed in a robe dipped in blood, and the name by which he is called is the Word of God. And the armies of heaven are arrayed in fine linen, white and pure. We're following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. And he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. And on his robe and on his thigh he has a name written. King of kings and Lord of lords. Then I saw an angel standing in the sun. That must have been a sight. And with a loud voice, he called to all the birds that fly directly overhead. Come, gather for the great supper of God. To eat the flesh of kings, the flesh of captains, 
the flesh of mighty men, the flesh of horses and their riders, and the flesh of all men, both free and slave, both small and great. And I saw the beast and the kings of the earth with their armies gathered to make war against him who was sitting on the horse and against his army. Bad idea. And the beast was captured, and with it the false prophet, who in its presence had done the signs by which he deceived those who had received the mark of the beast and those who worshipped its image. These two were thrown alive into the lake of fire that burns with sulfur. And the rest were slain by the sword that came from the mouth of him who was sitting on the horse. And all the birds were gorged with their flesh. And I say, Amen. Point number one. Jesus is making war and winning. Verse 11 tells us here, look, a white horse. The one sitting on it is called faithful and true. And in righteousness, in, in righteousness, not in error, not in, oh, oh my, but in righteousness, he judges and makes war. Jesus is making war and winning. You need to understand this. This is not like rocket science 101, and there's no big special revelation coming from up here today. It's just real clear out of the text. You don't need a seminary degree to read this. This is not a difficult passage. There's nothing hidden, nothing covered here, okay? Very simply, Jesus is making war on all those who will come against Him. Church, there is no war we lose. There is nothing we lose in advancing the gospel. The promise for us is even if we die, we gain. The promise is the gospel will be preached in all nations. Then the end will come. Jesus is judging and making war. And the promise to the churches who receive this letter is I know right now that the peripherals seem to be front and center. I know that it is hard for you. But look up. I am judging and making war and I will win. Church. Get this, the peripherals are irrelevant. Jesus invites you today to look up and recognize that He is coming and He's bringing the fullness of the kingdom and there is no shot that He loses. Jesus never loses. Even when there's an apparent loss, He's really winning. Go take a look at the cross. It appears that the evil one has won the day. But in reality, all he did was open up his own can. Because the crucifixion of the king would result in Jesus taking death from the evil one. And any fear that he might hold with it. What appears to be a loss is really a gain. There are no losses with Jesus. Which is why we can run crazy hair or lack thereof on fire. Into the advance of the cause and not worry about losing. Which it's very evident that Western Christianity doesn't get this because we're running nowhere fast. Not us, but Western Christianity. We spend it on ourselves. Most of our money is spent internally. 
we have jacked up locations that are really cool and really attractive to people who don't give a rats. But bottom line is, if we really believe the text, we would be running pell-mell into the advance of the gospel with no concern for my life, my security, or anything thereof because it's not written in the manual that it should be thus. And we would run knowing we win. Guys, when we as a church get this, we might start looking like the church that this was written to first time. There was no doubt whether or not these churches were on the front line. No doubt. They were not in reserve waiting to be called up. They were advancing the cause. They were getting it done. And Jesus sends them, Hey guys, it's tough. Look up. Look up. I'm bringing it. You've got it. Stay on task. And so guys, if you're in the fight, I say look up. Don't get distracted by the peripherals. They're irrelevant. What matters is that you look up and you're exhorted, encouraged, knowing that Jesus, the lover of your soul, is ruling your day, ruling the advance, ruling the cause, and there's nothing to fear. Nothing to fear. Jesus is called here faithful, true. He's standing before Pilate. Jesus says, I have come to testify to the truth. He's faithful to His promises. He is the truth. And He says to us, I'm, I'm waking war, I'm waging war, and I am winning. So, if you're not in the game, get in. Here's your open invitation. If there's not anything on the menu you like, go make it. Run into the conflict. It's worth the fight. Point number two, verse 12. Jesus is king of eternity. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems or crowns. And he has a name written that no one knows but himself. Jesus is king of eternity. As king, Jesus has not lost control over his creation, and he is ruling well. It makes total sense that when the churches received this letter... That the temptation for them would be to wonder, where are you? It appears that we are cast out with no purpose. And life is coming at us hard. And Where are you? And Jesus encourages them with this vision of His kingship over eternity. He's wearing many crowns. The emphasis here in the text is that it's an innumerable amount of crowns. It's not two, three, four, it's just many. John doesn't count them. Jesus doesn't tell them how many. It's just a multifaceted amount of crowns. He's wearing many crowns. The emphasis is he's king over eternity. And as king, he's the sovereign. And as the sovereign, he's not lost control. Let's just take a look with me at Colossians 1, 15 and 16. Colossians 1, 15 and 16 is one of those passages that uh, to be very frank, if uh, enough time is spent there um, and that's all you had, that'd be enough Christology to save, convict, instruct, send. It's rich. Um, it set, it sets your worldview. I think Colossians 1, 15 and 16, in my estimation, are two lenses that fit nicely in a pair of frames that you ought to wear on a daily basis. 
Look at all of life through this lens. It'll change, change your decision making. Change everything. Listen, he, speaking of Jesus, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. This passage automatically begins to set out Trinitarian theology. For by him, that is Jesus, who is the image of the invisible God, by him all things were created. Jesus didn't come into existence at Christmas. He's the eternal second person of the Trinity, the Son of God. Really important. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible. Even speaking of the angelic host, Jesus created them. Whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. Those words particularly referencing the earthly kings and those who sit in what appears to be authority in the heavenly places, even the demonic realm. That's a huge emphasis in the book of Colossians. This isn't a study on Colossians, but we're there, so just hang. For all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. All things, whether visible or invisible, were made by Jesus and for him. That means they are for him. They exist to be moved at his pleasure. At his willing, at his desiring. All things are for him. You are for him. You were made for him. Satan does not operate apart from him. He's on Jesus' leash. Your day was made for him. Your day is moved by him. And he is before all things. And in him all things hold together. Your worldview stays intact through Jesus. Your day is held intact through Jesus. All things are held together by Him and for Him. And there's a lot more there that's really tempting to go to, but I won't do it now because that's not the point. My point is this. He's the King of eternity. He stands outside of time and space. He made all time and space. And He's never dropped the scepter of His rule. From beginning to end, he knows it in a very moment in time and eternity. There's nothing that will surprise him. Tomorrow doesn't surprise him. He's ordained it for your good. And the advancement of his cause. And he invites him to look up and see him wearing these crowns. And recognize, hey dudes, I'm ruling well. Fear not. There's anything that you have to to fear tomorrow or you think you have to fear tomorrow, look up and see him. He's ruling very well. Have no fear. Worried about your ministry? Worried about the work? Have no fear. He's ruling well. Jesus is described here as having flames. His eyes are like flames of fire. That's an intense image, isn't it? I see something like that on television. I'm flipping the channel. That's a little freaky. He's got his eyes are like a flame of fire, and have a strong enough imagination that I can see that. D.A. Carson makes some commentary, and I'm going to read it all for you. But it's a nice summary. Jesus has resolve and passionate intensity in warring for his people. 
There's a resolve and a passionate intensity in Jesus in warring for his people. You ever wonder if you're loved? See, that, that, that's the great lie of the evil one. Does God really care? He said it in the garden to your mom. Did he really say and does he really love me? He knows you're going to be like him. So he doesn't want you to have that. He's withholding from you. Does God love you? Does he care about you? If you wonder, look at the manual. He is passionately, intensely warring on your behalf, church. Isn't that good to know? That Jesus is at war on our behalf. He also says of him here that he has a name written that no one knows but himself. This is not a systematic theology course right now, but uh, Grudem does a fantastic job in dealing with the doctrine of God, speaking about his communicable and incommunicable attributes. The communicable attributes of God are those attributes that he shares with us when he creates us in his image. The incommunicable attributes of God are the attributes that God doesn't share with us. And the things and pieces of God's nature that remain a mystery that He's chosen not to reveal to us. And there's this tendency for us to make Jesus so familiar that we turn Him into our buddy. And even in this passage, He's warring for us, but there's still some of us He hasn't allowed him, us to know. He's got a name that nobody knows, but he's got it. And there's this sense here that John is saying, he's warring for you, but, but remember, he's good, but he's not tame. He hasn't allowed us to know some things, which that serves a functional purpose for us Christians, and that's this. It drives us to this place of mystery and enjoyment and intrigue. To come before Him and know Him. And seek Him out. So the invitation to Him is, look, He's ruling well. He's got your day. He's working on your behalf. He's passionately warring for you. And He's totally knowable. But there's also that part of Him that is intriguing. It says, come to me and know me more. Guys, it's a beautiful thing. Spurgeon writes about the doctrine of God when he says those who set their minds on creation to know it and to know it well are very intelligent people. And their minds can be very deep, but there is a limit to their depth because when setting one's mind on creation, it can only go so far. But the mind that sets itself on the knowledge of God is infinitely deep because the depths of his character are unable to be sounded. And so he says, come to me. Guys, this is one of the beautiful things about the coming kingdom. We will spend eternity. And I know that blows the lid off of creation because we dwell in time and space. We have a beginning and an end. In eternity where there is no end, you will spend eternity getting to know him and you will never sound the depths of his character. Chew on that for a while do that for a lifetime I'm still chewing on that he's king he's king number three verse 13 the logos Jesus is an avenging warrior his 
He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood. And the name by which he is called is the Word of God. This image is absolutely astounding, by the way. The first thing I want you to pay attention to is John calls him the Word. This is unique to John. In John chapter 1, John says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And in verse 14 he says, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we saw Him. Now this is one of the things I enjoy doing in my New Testament class, is dealing with John um, and these statements on the front end because they're vital. John is building an apologetic, a defense of Jesus to the Greek mind. John is written to an audience that's predominantly Greek in nature. And he's emphasizing the spiritual deity of Jesus. And to the Greek mind, there were two dominant thinkers, Plato and Aristotle. Plato believed that truth was revealed to us from the divine logos, the word. Unnamed, just in Greek philosophy, truth came from logos above us. Aristotle, a student of Plato, disagreed. Aristotle said, we find truth by observing the world around us, what we see. Now, there are massive worldview implications from that, but this is also not Worldview 101, but just that's their thought. There's actually a painting in the Vatican of that, depicting that, where Plato's pointing up, Aristotle's pointing down, depicting that, that philosophical divide in the source of truth. What John does here when he says in the beginning was the Logos and the Logos was with God and the Logos was God. And in the next five verses he connects Jesus to the Logos. What John is saying to his Greek audience is that source where you thought truth came from you call Logos. His name is Jesus. That's how John starts off his gospel. That's beastly by the way. That's freaking cool. So he says to the Greek audience, you think you know where truth comes from? Let me tell you, his name is Jesus. And then he goes to the Aristotelian people in verse 14 when he says, and the word, the logos, took on flesh and dwelt among us and we, we saw him. We got to handle him, we got to touch him, our eyes got to see him and observe him. And so John is writing to them so they can observe the God, the Logos, source of truth who took on flesh so that not only we could hear, but we could see, and taste, and touch, and feel, experience. And when John here, author of Revelation, says his name is the Word of God, he's saying this is the Logos. Remember the one I told you about, the Logos? Here he is, and he's riding on a horse, fighting on your behalf. Jesus, as the Logos, is the source of truth. Guys, in a world in which truth has been made subjective, an issue of your opinion and mine, John writes to his people and says, the Logos is warring for you, and don't forget, he's the Logos, he's the source of truth. Because you see, for them... You've got to be wondering, what am I doing here? Why am I doing this? This is crazy, man. This is insane. It's easier to go back. It's easier to go back, man. This is crazy. And he reminds them the Logos is on the horse. That's the truth. Don't take your eyes off that. Guys, the temptation often for us when we're in the war 
If you're not in the war, there's no temptation here. It's just like go to another Bible study and get fat on spiritual things. But if you're in the war, the temptation often is like, forget that mess, man. I'm tired. I don't have to do that. I'm done. Much less if they'd actually come after our physical lives. John says to his church here, guys, there's a logos, there's a truth. Look up, behold. But the logos is sitting on a horse. He's got on a white garment speaking of his righteousness and his purity and his perfection. And it's dipped in blood. And by the way, it's not his blood. Where's John coming from with this? It's actually a location. Isaiah 63. Um, often um, folk who read the Old Testament for the first time are shocked. Because the Old Testament, uh, uh, God speaks saltily. One of the sad things about some Christian subcultures is the washing of our language of biblical language. So I would just say, it's totally okay for your language to mirror that of Scripture. If it's in the manual, it's okay for you to say. Okay? I can't tell you how many people come and apologize for things sometimes that are biblical, that they pray and think. And I thought, but that's okay, it's in the manual. Don't be, don't be desensitized to, to Jesus. Don't have yourself desensitized in a politically correct culture where you think it's not okay to speak truth. That somehow, anyway... So just listen to Isaiah 63, 1-6. This is where John is coming from here. This is a prophetic looking forward to the day of the Lord's vengeance in which the Lord is going to mete out punishment on His people's enemies. He's looking toward particularly that day that Messiah, the suffering servant of chapter 53, would return, which I love the contrast. I mean, Isaiah's doing it. If you just read Isaiah, you see Revelation the suffering servant who comes and dies in our place for our sin is also coming back. And this time he's going to stomp on some people. He got stomped on and now he's going to do some stomping. All right. Isaiah 53, get stomped. Isaiah 63, he's stomping. Listen. Who is this who comes from Edom in crimsoned garments from Basra? He who is splendid in his apparel, marching in the greatness of his strength. It is I, speaking in righteousness. Mighty to save. There's a good Bible verse, memory verse this week. It is I, speaking righteousness, mighty to save. Isn't that cool? Jesus is mighty to save. Why is your apparel red and your garments like His who treads in the winepress? Isaiah asks. This is the response. I have trodden the winepress alone. And from the peoples no one was with me. I trod them in my anger and trampled them in my wrath. Their lifeblood. And if your, foot, your Bible may have a footnote there. And if it does, the Hebrew word means juice. Just so you know. It does. I mean, that's just what it is. It is what it is. It's in the manual. Their lifeblood. Some of your translations may actually translate it juice. But um, their lifeblood spattered on my garments and stained all my apparel. For the day of vengeance was in my heart, and my year of redemption had come. I looked, but there was no one to help. I was appalled, but there was no one to uphold. So my own arm brought me salvation, and my wrath upheld me. I trampled down the peoples in my anger. I made them drunk in my wrath, and I poured out their lifeblood on the earth. 
That's John's image in Revelation 19 here, particularly verse 13. The blood on his garment is the blood of his enemies. I say this like I said last week. You and I need to make sure we're on the right team. We have this weird and westernized Christianity, this weird debate among evangelical and liberal scholars about the role of God's wrath. And what you and I need to understand is the difference between those two schools is the difference in how one approaches the manual. One believes it's not inerrant, the other does. Believes it affirms nothing contrary to fact. I'm on that team. And when it speaks it, it intends it. And what we need to understand is there is coming a day in which Jesus will judge his enemies. He took a beating one time and that's it. There are no more beatings Jesus is taking. He died in your place for your sin once. And when he returns, he is not returning to take a beating for you. He's returning to give one out on all those who will not come to Him and find their rest in Him. That's not politically correct, and that won't play. Nobody will ever invite us to be on Fox News in the political arena and speak on behalf of Christianity. But it's in the manual. And we don't have an option on thinking it. Jesus, the Logos, is also an avenging warrior. I would contend with 60% of the evangelical church being feminine and not masculine. One of the reasons is, is we preach to Jesus that's mildly effeminate. And I'll be very frank with you, for a long time for me, that wasn't real sweet. I wasn't really into, because I was like, nah, I'm, nah, nah, I'm, I'm good. I'm not into that. I would argue that we failed miserably at preaching Jesus as He is. Because here's my hint. It's kind of what I think. If the dudes are into Jesus, the ladies will follow suit because that's what they were made to do. That also is not politically correct. Feminism is a result of the fall, ladies. And if you bought the lie, read your manual and let Jesus correct your heart. Male leadership is not domination. It's just that proper leadership. Jesus does not act on His own authority. John 5, 19, I do not act on my own authority. I only do what I see the Father doing. It is the role of the man to set an example by which the ladies follow and love as he loves her. She loves him and does what he does. Imitates. And I would argue that if we would hold Jesus up as he is, I, I, will, I will go to war with this. Jesus is crazy attractive to men who want to be like their king, who's riding on a white horse, not a mildly effeminate 70s hippie. I'm just saying. I'm just saying. Jesus the Logos is an avenging warrior. I'm going to run out of time. Number four, Jesus is in command of His church who have died and the hosts of heaven. Verse 14 is fun. Because it sort of gets us looking forward to chapter 20 and the eternal kingdom. Uh, heaven, which is cool. And it is a lot like Dixie. So I want to go. Just saying. Some of you are redneck enough. You've heard that song. And I know who you are now. I know who you are now. 
Verse 14, and the armies of heaven arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. Jesus' returning forces include those who've gone to be with him. Chapter 17, verse 14 in Revelation is alluding to this when it says those doing battle with Jesus are called chosen and faithful. That's not angels. That's us. You are the elect. If you're in the gospel, you're of the elect. And he's referencing those who are coming with him as chosen and faithful. Paul references this also in 1 Thessalonians 4, 13 to 14, when he says those who have died are coming with him. They will be with him. Here, This is cool. And this kind of makes me want to, before Jesus comes, I hope I croak before he comes, because this is going to be rich, okay? It's going to be fun. Because I'm coming with him. I get a horse too. And I don't even have to fight. I'm just riding behind him. And as he crushes people, I'm like, yeah, me too. Yeah, what he said. I'm just galloping along. That's awesome. I don't even have to wield a sword. I just get to ride behind him and watch it. Yeah, my team. It's like being on the sideline in an NFL game. You get a six-figure salary and you get to cheer your team on and you never get hurt. I'm into that. And that's what this is. We're, if you go to be with Christ when He returns, you are coming with Him. That's pretty fun. I mean, you get... I need to calm down, relax, draw it in, draw it in. Jesus' command of His church. And, and, and the beautiful thing is, and this is fun, there's hope here for you also. When we lose those of the faith, family, friends, people in our church... They're coming with Him. They didn't go into nothingness. They went to be with Jesus. And they inherited the kingdom. And when He comes, they're coming with Him. Made right. Sin done away with. They've been made whole. And they're riding a white horse too. And they're going, yeah, what He said. And they're winning. And this is why Paul says, we don't mourn like those who have no hope. Why? Because they're alive with the King who's alive. That's reality. And that's why we don't mourn like those who have no hope. He's in command of His church. Because when they die, when we die, we go to be with Him. We, we, we become the church perfected. I wish we were charismatic. Because I feel like going charismatic. I'm excited. I'm ready to just go be with Jesus now. Because I want to ride on a horse and win like that. Okay. He's also in command of His angelic hosts. The implication in this text is not only are the saints with him, but he is in charge of all the hosts of heaven who were not in the rebellion. Hebrews 1.14 reminds us these angelic hosts are sent to serve on behalf of those who inherit eternal life. The hosts of heaven that are sent to do battle on your behalf against the evil one and his forces are also coming. In other words, this is, this is a very fearsome and intense army that's going to win the day. You don't want none of this. It's bad to the bone. Number five, Jesus is again a mighty warrior king. Verse 15, from his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations and he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress, the fury, the wrath of God, the Almighty. There are three pieces to this. Number one is the sword. As bad as I hate to say it, and I could be wrong, I'm hoping I'm wrong here. I hope my exegesis is totally backward. (laughs) 
I don't think this is a physical sword. It's coming out of his mouth. Not that he couldn't. I mean, he's Jesus. He can do whatever he wants. But it's probably not a literal sword, but imagery emphasizing the lethal power of his speaking. Hebrews 1, 1 to 3, Jesus is said to be speaking and holding creation up by his very powerful word. Creation is sustained right now by the one who created creation by his speaking it into existence constantly. Which is why people with a, with a material worldview that matter is all there is, is incapable of seeing the spiritual reality that holds things together. It's not because the atom is so magnetic. It's because Jesus speaks magnetism into existence. But if you have a material worldview, that will elude you. And you'll become an atheist, evolutionary biologist fool. So when Jesus is returning, this sharp sword is probably his lethal power in his speaking. At which when Jesus speaks, he deals a death blow to those who have not repented. Just like he sustains your life right now, he can snuff it out. When he returns at the speaking of his very powerful word. Again, John emphasizing to these churches, Jesus is powerful, fear not. He has an iron scepter. Psalm 2 promises that the Lord's Messiah would rule with a scepter of iron. This does not mean a stern ruling. This means destruction. Jesus not only leads the flock, the green pastures, but he will defend them against their enemies with a crushing blow. You ever remember as a kid, maybe somebody fooling around with you, messing with you, kind of picking on you, and somebody coming to your defense? If you ever had that happen to you, that's pretty cool. You know, somebody's like fooling around with you, and somebody comes to your defense and crushes the person messing with you, and you're like, yeah. He leads us beside still waters. He restores our soul. And those who would come and attack his sheep, he will take his scepter of iron and crush them. So much he loves you. He will guard you with fierceness. Isn't that cool to know that you're loved like that? He's treading the wine press. See, wrath is part of the love of God. It's a great little book called The Difficult Doctrine of the Love of God. You should read it by D.A. Carson. Love is a very complicated thing. It is not a very simple thing. We've, we've simplified it to the destruction of the term. And I'm a chief sinner in that. Love has another side to it and is wrath. If someone that is dear and near to you abandons, turns their back on you, what happens? Are you, aw, poor me, poor them. How do you respond? You feel it welling up. It rises. Probably an initial maybe shock or shame. And the next thing you know, it's, it's anger, right? Why? Why do we get angry? Because we loved. Anger is spurned love. You see, Jesus so loved the world that He created that He would come and He would die in your place for your sin. He would pour out His life unto death so that you and I could come underneath His wings and rest in Him and be loved by Him and never be counted guilty of our sin. What a glorious reality. 
But when that love is spurned, the only righteous response is crushing. You see, he's treading out the wine press of his fury, not because he delights in the death of the wicked, he does not, but because when love is spurned, it's the only right thing. Which is why John says in the front end, in righteousness does he judge and make war. It is only right that those kings and kingdoms and people who will not repent would be crushed. Verse 16, Jesus is the universal sovereign. He has written on his thigh and on his robe, King of kings and Lord of lords. That means he's king over kings of the earth. It means he's Lord over the lords of the earth. Number seven, Jesus will conquer and he will judge. Verse 17 to 21 presents a very gory picture of those Jesus crushes being fed to the birds of the air. Remember the story of Ahab and Jezebel? Your blood would be licked by the dogs in the street, the prophet said. And lo and behold, the dogs licked the blood of his enemies. Jesus says, my enemies, kings, nations, people are going to be eaten by the birds of the air. Again, make sure you're on team Jesus. And then finally, in this section here, with Jesus is the conquering one and he's the judge. He throws the beast and the false prophet in the lake of fire. Next chapter, we get to see Jesus cast the dragon into the lake of fire. This unholy trinity... This cheap imitation of the triunity of God is judged and they are thrown alive in the lake of fire which is going to be the home of all those who also reject the gospel. Hell was made for Satan and his angels and they're going to get it and so will all those who will not repent and believe the glorious gospel of Jesus. So, conclusion. When you're tempted to take the peripheral skirmishes and make them front and center, that's been for me this week, and I'm sure it's been for you. Probably it's every day for us, isn't it? You know, you wake up every day, and the peripheral takes front and center at center stage, is it not? It's just the way, I think it's the challenge of living life as a Christian. I, I I want you to hear today, and I I want you to be encouraged today to look up and see your your my our warrior Savior King. Lover of your soul, guardian and defender, Jesus. And as the song said, and I say again this week, the things of earth will grow strangely dim in the light of His glory and grace. And you will be free to worship. Let me pray for you. Jesus, um, you are incredibly good to us. And um, I thank you for who you are um, you are the conquering, reigning king of the universe. And uh, you are infinitely worthy of our full attention. So Jesus, we need help to set aside the peripheral things that do matter. They're important, but they're not the point. So help us to do that, would you please now? Help us to set aside all the things that hinder and the sin that so easily entangles and help us to run with perseverance the race set before us. Help us to set our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy before Him 
endured the cross and despised the shame. Would you let us imitate that this morning and tomorrow and Tuesday and Wednesday and Thursday and Friday and Saturday? Lord Jesus, we need your help to do that. Holy Spirit, we pray that you would come and and uh, fight on our behalf. We pray against the effects of the evil one who doesn't like truth and wants to veil the truth with lies. Would you keep lies from affecting our thinking? Would you cause truth to reign so that we can do this for your glory and for our good?